We just finished our study of the book of Isaiah. We've just spent almost 30 Sundays in Isaiah. So I want to I I launch off of Isaiah into kind of the context, the world that Isaiah entered. And I want to do that by first asking this question, who read Isaiah? Like, who are the first readers, the first people to read the book of Isaiah? I mean, we know from history that most people didn't pay much attention to Isaiah at first because the first sort of chapter of his book was all about uh, you need to stop doing what you're doing, otherwise you're going to go into exile. And they went into exile, which means that if they did read it, they quickly closed it up and set it on the shelf or threw it away. Most people didn't listen to Isaiah at first. So the first people to really read Isaiah intently would have been the exiles, those uh, who had experienced the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the, the temple, the whole city, and then been taken away by Babylon into exile. People like Daniel, who lived in the 500s, and Esther, who lived in Persia, the kingdom of Babylon, which took Judah away from Jerusalem, uh, was soon taken over by the kingdom of Persia, and that's where Esther lived. So this kind of gives you a rough framework for sort of the chronology here. Isaiah is in the 700s, 600s, I'm not 100% sure when it was written. Uh, Daniel was taken to Babylon in the uh, beginning of the 500s, end of the 600s, it's like backwards land, you know, when you get into the BC stuff. And then Esther would have been about um, sometime in the 400s, roughly speaking. Now, Daniel and Esther, they're, they're books in the Bible. Uh, there's a book called Daniel that tells of Daniel and his experiences in exile as well as as the experience of some of his friends. There's a book called Esther, which tells of her experiences in Persia, and we'll look briefly at those today. They have remarkable stories, remarkable stories of faith. Now, what sustained their faith? I mean, think about their situation. We're going to see in just a second what God gave them to sustain their faith when they were back in the promised land was his word, but distributed and focused on the operation of the temple. That the operation of the temple was to be the source of faith where God's people would come together, hear the word, see each other, remember what God has sent them out to be, and then they would go do that. It was to be this engine of personal faith for each Israelite and then corporate mission for Israel to do what God had called them to do, to spread the knowledge of his glory. So what sustained the exiles? I want to read Brian's passage that he opened our service with. Psalm 119, 49, remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. What did they go to for hope? They went to the word. What did they go to for comfort and for life and for strength? This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. What did the exiles look to to be sustained in their walk of faith, cut off from the land, cut off from the temple? They looked to the word of God. Paul says this most succinctly in Romans chapter 10, verse 16. How shall salvation come to people except by hearing? And what do they need to hear? They need to hear, they need to put their faith in the word of God. The word of God gives us stronger, strengthened faith. So we're going to think about this morning, the stories of Daniel and Esther in the context of the book of Isaiah. We're not going to be able to do a deep dive into this. This could probably be a dissertation if any of you are interested in uh, doing PhD work in the Old Testament. Uh, this could probably be developed along those lines. But we're just going to touch on these subjects briefly this morning. 
But first, I just want to make sure that to think about, is it realistic to think that Daniel and Esther would have had the book of Isaiah? Would they, we can see chronologically that it certainly uh, does make sense that they would have had, that they could have had the book of es, uh, Isaiah. But I think it also makes sense in that uh, you think about the, the Jewish people's relationship to the scriptures, which in general, they, they really were... Uh, protective of them and desired them, Isaiah would have been the most remarkable new written word of a prophet in a long time in Israel. And more than that, it was very well written. Isaiah was a nobleman. He lived in the the temple or in the palace and in the palace sort of nobility. So everybody would have been very popular. This would have been considered a bestseller, especially by the time it came to the exiles, to whom it was written. So especially chapters 40 to 66 were written to people who were living in Babylon, people who were living in Persia. So I think Daniel would have, he would have coveted this book and he would have just gobbled it up and would have, he would have used this in his devotions. He would have returned to Isaiah repeatedly. I think as we'll see from Esther's story, she probably wasn't so interested in the literature of Israel, especially when she was younger. But I'm sure she she was also aware of it thanks to Mordecai, her uncle, who was apparently a pretty faithful practicing Jew as well. So I'd like to suggest this morning as we begin here, and I think this is not even just possible, but very probable, and I can't, I can't see how it wouldn't be true, that the book of Isaiah was something that God used to sustain Daniel and Esther. That Daniel and Esther would have known of, they would have valued and loved the book of Isaiah. They lived in fearful times. They faced death. But they trusted in the faithful God, and in part they trusted in God because of Isaiah's influence in their lives. And that, in turn, gave them faith for what they were facing. But there's another turn in the story that we're going to see, because Daniel and Esther both are a part of something else that God does beyond them. We're going to look at that in just a minute. So my goals for us this morning is to see how Isaiah functioned in Daniel and Esther's life, and to see then how their faith functioned in the plan of God. So see how the word of God functioned in their life, and then how their lives functioned in the plan of God. Because I want you to understand that that same thing is operating in your life. That the word of God means to work in your life and give you strength and life and comfort and hope. And that your life then is designed to serve the purpose and plan of God. All right, so there's two problems as we begin this sequence of stories. We're going to look first at the story of Daniel. We're going to look then at the story of Esther. And then we're going to look at the rest of the story. But there's, there's two big problems that I want you to appreciate before we go further. And I've already alluded to them because these are sort of the stakes of the situation. And the two big problems are that the, the temple has been destroyed, obliterated, and they're in exile. So what had become sort of the focal point, the symbol of God's presence with his people, has been removed, and they have been removed from the land. Right? Imagine waking up one day and you are more alone than you ever thought you would be, and more lost than you ever thought you could feel. That's how the exiles felt. That's their situation. Right? They're, they're alone and lost in a way that they had thought God specifically was going to be the protection against. That we'll never have to feel this alone. We'll never have to feel this lost. 
And this is the situation that Daniel is in, that Esther is in. I mean, this is a massive loss to have all this destroyed by this evil great empire and have us taken away to live there. They didn't know what, what do we do now, right? The temple embodied the, the life of their faith and it was this symbol of what God had called them to do. It was so symbolically rich and meaningful and powerful and functioned as such a centerpiece in their lives. And the land was the promise of God to Abraham. It was the promise of God. What now? What now? So let's look at Daniel. Daniel was born in Jerusalem. He was born probably during the time that Isaiah is writing chapters 1 to 39. He's born during the time that those, that section of Isaiah is addressing the, the rich people who are pretending to be religious but are really being self-serving and decadent. So Daniel, as a very young man, is taken away, exiled, uh, which is what? A fancy word, you know what this means for being like defeated in military conquest and enslaved away from your home in a, in a foreign land. So this is Daniel. He's a slave living in Babylon, uh, and he lives there for the rest of his life. Now, because of his gifts and his abilities, he becomes a pretty high-ranking official in the Babylonian Empire and then later in the Persian Empire. We're going to look at one of the stories here, a story that probably if you have any familiarity with Scripture, you're, you're well aware of, and maybe even if you don't know much about Scripture, you have heard of. And it's the story of Daniel and the lion's den. You know the story, Daniel and the lion's den. So let me just review it for you in brief. Uh, all great empires have uh, large, large complexes with no windows, right? And what do we do in there? Those are the uh, official... Uh, official functions of the state in keeping the peace, meaning they're torture chambers. And one of the divisions of the torture chambers in Babylon was a large pit full of lions. And the lions would have been kept hungry all the time so that whenever there was a need for a lesson to be taught, whenever there was a political prisoner who, who needed to die in a uniquely terrifying and loud manner, they could be lowered down into the lion's den. As a lesson to everybody. Now, what did Daniel do to deserve this? Right? Why, why, why would Daniel be lowered down into this lion's den? Well, if he, actually, he actually didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, just preceding the story, it says that Daniel was so good at his job that the king was going to make him the administrator of the entire kingdom. So he was going to be the, what, the chief accountant or something. He would be the, the COO of the entire kingdom of Medio persia at this time. So he's very good at his job. He's going to be over the whole kingdom, but there's a conspiracy form to get rid of Daniel. What could they use? Right? He wasn't into any of the usual things that we would put on social media to take somebody down. So what could we do? They had to use his faith. And so they, they trick the king into signing into law uh, a prohibition against praying to God. So what did Daniel do? He prayed to God. Who cares what the laws say? If the law of Scripture tells him to do something, he's going to do it. So he prays to God, and he's found out. The king, who really liked Daniel, of course, he wanted to, uh, you know, make use of him. He's a very important guy in the kingdom. The king realizes what just happened, but he had signed it into law, so he couldn't overturn it. So Daniel is lowered into the pit, bound and lowered into the pit. You know the story now. What happens to Daniel? Nothing happens to Daniel. Right, those, those starving lions all leave them alone. They leave them alone all night. 
So that in the morning, the king brings him out and replaces him with the conspirators, who it says in the text were dead before they hit the ground. So this is an extraordinary story of so many things, of God's faithfulness and of Daniel's faith are the key features here. God's faithfulness to Daniel and Daniel's faith in this fearful situation. Now, what sustained Daniel's faith in the face of troubles like this? Are you in Isaiah 11? We were just there for our our Bible reading this morning, our scripture reading. Look with me. Actually, I'm going to have it up here. Just hang on. All right, here's Isaiah 11 that we just read. Notice anything in these verses that may have given Daniel some measure of hope, some measure of maybe God, maybe God can protect me and help me even here. Right, this is a beautiful and powerful passage of Scripture. We love Isaiah 11. Daniel loved Isaiah 11. Everybody who reads the Bible everywhere has loved Isaiah 11. So Daniel would have loved this passage. And as the threat of potentially going into the lion's den began to approach him, what do you think his mind would have turned to? This promise about what God is going to do on the last day and how this is depicted is very unique and potentially encouraging to Daniel. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I can imagine Daniel praying, Lord, my heart is just that the the knowledge of your glory covered the face of this earth like the waters covered the sea. And that's the only thing that matters to me. And yet, if it's your will, I know that you can make the lion to lie down calmly beside uh, the fattened calf. And, the, and, the, and you can make the lion to desire straw and not, my, not man flesh. Uh, Lord, I know that you can do this. I know that you can put me in a place where, where nothing can hurt me or destroy me. And so I turn myself over to you. Isaiah 11, probably, I can't imagine how it didn't, uh, sustained Daniel in that situation. And of course, there's many other passages that I, I think we could look at that uh, I didn't include in the sermon because it's already kind of a lot of stories. Uh, there's a lot of similar sorts of passages that would have been very important for Daniel. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the word of God, sustained Daniel in his fearful times. And here's the point that I, I want us to see. That God's word will strengthen us in our fearful things. Like normal people in normal places in normal times have fearful things. But I know that for a lot of us, the situation that we uh, seem to be approaching globally, nationally, however you want to think about this, can uh, increase our fear levels. But friends, you face nothing like what Daniel faced. That doesn't, I'm not saying that to make yours sound super wimpy, but I just want you to know that even there, beyond what you're even afraid of, when you're being lowered into the lion's den, Daniel was there, and God was faithful to him. God is faithful, and the word of God sustained Daniel's faith. Chapter 2. Try to find the book of Esther now, if you will, in your Bibles. Look for the book of Esther. Esther was born in Persia. Probably her story that we're going to look at takes place maybe 50 or 60 years after Daniel's story. 
And not too far away, the the Persian Empire sort of took over the Babylonian Empire and just kind of used most of their infrastructure. Now, her story takes place in a city called Susa, not Babylon, which was the capital of Babylonian Empire. But Susa was not very far away. Now, unlike Daniel, she does not appear to have had much in the way of faith. No one even knows that she's Jewish until kind of the end of the story. In fact, the story opens and she's competing in a Miss Persia pageant. Uh, seeing who's going to be the next queen of Persia, right? So this is not a great spot for a Jewish girl to find herself in. She's certainly not taking her, her faith seriously. She doesn't even want it to be known that she's Jewish. And then, uh, you know, extraordinarily, she wins this pageant and she becomes uh, one of the wives of Ahasuerus, king of Persia. Now, in the background of that story, there's another story going on. And let me just explain it in brief. Her uncle, her uncle who raised her, her name is Morde- his name is Mordecai, he had made a high-ranking political enemy. And that enemy, that, that high-ranking political enemy, hated Mordecai. And he thought, what is it about Mordecai that makes him such a stick in the mud? And he realized it was his Jewishness. So he said, now I'm not only going to kill Mordecai, I'm just going to get rid of that whole people group because I'm just so mad at Mordecai. So he makes a plan, again, using the, the legal system. He gets the king to sign into law a decree dooming the Jews, basically given kingdom-wide, anybody who knows a Jew and you want their stuff, you can kill them and take it. That's the law that just got passed. Well, that would include Esther, of course. So her uncle begs her to do something uh, to try to get this repealed. Now, for her to do it, though, she's got to go into her own sort of metaphorical lines, then. Look with me at Esther chapter 4, verse 11. This is Esther speaking. She's trying to explain to Mordecai, her uncle, why she does not want to do anything. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther is being presented with, again, her own sort of lion's den. There's one law, be put to death. So she puts together what is barely a plan. If you know the story of Esther, it's not a plan, it's a luncheon. But somehow God uses it and again overturns the the plans of his enemies. Uh, Her enemy, Haman, this official who hated her uncle Mordecai, her enemy ends up being hanged on the gallows that he had built in order to publicly hang and humiliate Mordecai. So there's this great reversal in the story of Esther. So now again, what is it that renewed Esther's faith? You know, she didn't have much faith, and all of a sudden she's willing to lay her life down for her people for such a time as this. Right? We're going to think about that in just a second. 
What renewed her faith? And I think it was the influence of the book of Isaiah in her life. There's a really interesting connection here. Let me just show you this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 24. The Lord declares, I will get relief from my enemies. Now, you might read that. I read that. And I thought, well, that's, that's just typical Old Testament Bible stuff, right? Everybody's getting relief from their enemies now and again. What's interesting is that that phrase only appears in Esther, outside of Isaiah 1.24. Relief from blank enemies. Relief from my enemies in 1.24 of Isaiah, and twice in Esther, as the, uh, the person who was writing Esther describes what just happened. They describe the book of Esther and what God did in the language of the promise of Isaiah. You understand that? The, they're using Isaiah's language to describe what God did through Esther. There's also this, this unique thing about the, uh, what Mordecai says, right? This little kind of jab that he sends to Esther. Who knows, but you've been raised up for such a time as this. If you can, flip back with me to Isaiah 11. We see this at the, at the end of Isaiah 11, this interesting theme of the end of the reading that we just had. So in Isaiah 11, verse 11, it says, In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. In that day. Now turn. I know this is a lot of turning. You're getting really tired. Let's turn to Isaiah 60. One last thing. This is not the last Bible turning we'll do, but not a lot left. So there's this idea throughout the prophets. Sometimes it's referred to as uh, in that time. Sometimes it's referred to as in that day. When you go into the New Testament, sometimes they'll say the day of the Lord has come or the time is fulfilled. That, that phrase, the day or the time, was a very rich expression for the prophets. Where they're looking forward to God doing a second thing. Like he did with the Exodus. He's going to do that again. He's going to bring us back from exile back to the land. He's going to redeem us. He's going to save us. He's going to bring us back a second time. So sometimes they call it in that day, and sometimes they call it uh, at that time. Isaiah 60 is a really interesting chapter in light of the book of Esther. So look at uh, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now skip down to verse 14. This, is, this verse here is exactly the story of Esther. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. In the last verse of Isaiah 60, the least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. When Mordecai says to Esther, who knows that you've been raised up for such a time as this? He wasn't just saying like, 
this time of affliction, but this time of deliverance prophesied by the prophets, by Isaiah. The Lord will hasten it in its time, this time when he's going to do this great reversal and make your enemies come before you. And that's exactly what God does in Esther. So Isaiah strengthened Esther, maybe not directly, but certainly through her uncle Mordecai and called her to faith. They, and they, the, they told the story of Esther to future generations as fulfilling the story, the, the prophecies of Isaiah. So again, we see that God's word strengthened Esther to face her fearful things, and she faced them, and God is faithful. All right, so the point of all this this morning, I want you to understand God is faithful. God is faithful in the story of Daniel. He's faithful in the story of Esther. And God's faithfulness means three things. It means that he's faithful when we're not. God's faithful full stop. No ifs, ands, or buts. God is faithful. It doesn't, he doesn't demand our faithfulness. He's not watching to see if we're good before he'll be good. He's good first. He loves us first. He's faithful all the time. And he is faithful. He is faithful not just to us and our behavior, but he's faithful to his word, which is why living by his word is so important. You ever go out and look for mushrooms in the woods? You ever do this? I never do because it all looks like dirt, right? And leaves. I don't, I don't, I don't notice it. I don't know. I don't ever see. I've never seen a mushroom in the wild. I've only ever seen them at Pick and Save, right? Why is that? It's because I'm not living according to the mushroom pickers' Bibles and books and YouTube videos, right? I don't see them. God is going to keep his word. If you want to see it, live in the word. Live with the word. You'll start noting, you know, you'll be like these mushroom geeks who are all like, they pick, right? And they fill up their buckets because it's everywhere. Friends, you want to fill up your buckets with the faithfulness of God. Live in the word. That is what God will be faithful to. The second, second thing that faithfulness means, among many, but for our, in our stories, it means that he will work. Do you want God to work in your life? Friends, I want you to think about that before you answer. Because when you need God to work, it means what? It means that you are in a bad place where you don't really know what else to do. And you need God to work. Which is really, you know... Brian referenced the health, wealth, prosperity nonsense. I don't want to muddy the word gospel with it if I can avoid it. Um, he re- mentioned that. It was sort of this uh, American creation that we've uh, glommed onto, this, uh, this barnacle onto the true Christian faith. And it's so silly in light of, I think, like these Old Testament stories, which is that God is present to his people and working in their lives never to keep them from suffering. Never to keep them from suffering, right? The chronicles of the Old Testament are just story after story of people going through horrible things and finding the Lord with them, through them, bringing them comfort and hope and strength and life according to his word and by his presence. So, but God will work. And what is it that God will do? We're always anxious whenever we say, what is God going to do? Or he will do something. What's he going to do? Tell me what he's going to do quick. Well, I think one of the other big lessons from the Bible stories is... There's no way you can know. It'll always be surprising. It'll always work. God's faithfulness also means that he works in ways that we cannot see. 
God is always up to more than we can imagine. So now I want to tell you the rest of the stories. The rest of the stories. And this is, uh, this is stuff that I didn't know about Daniel and Esther. And it has to do with the rebuilding of the temple, the return of exiles to the promised land, and the relaunching of God's mission. So let's go back to Daniel. So Daniel finishes up his service in these uh, royal administrations. He's an old man. And the last king that he serves under for just like maybe a year or two at the most is King Cyrus, known as Cyrus the Great. I'm sure he gave himself that title. Cyrus the Great of Persia. All of his, all of his uh, journal entries and Cyrus the Great. Cyrus would have, he would have been in the palace, in that world, when Daniel went into the lion's den and came out. He would have known that story. He would have known Daniel. In fact, it says the story of Daniel in the lion's den ends, the chapter ends by saying, and Daniel served King Cyrus. If you can find it, look with me at Ezra chapter 1. Ezra, so right before Esther. Esther and Nehemiah is right behind it. Ezra is right behind that. Ezra chapter 1. So Daniel would have worked at the highest level in the smallest room with King Cyrus, who would have known all of these stories of Daniel's. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 begins, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So King Cyrus, the king of Persia, why would he do this? It doesn't make any sense, but he just up and decides that the kingdom of Persia is going to let all of the Judean exiles return to Jerusalem. They're going to compensate them for the journey. They're going to give them back all the treasures that they stole. And they're going to pay for the temple and for the city to be rebuilt. Why would any administrator, any kingdom administrator in his right mind do something like this? But you notice this is the first year of Cyrus's reign. This would make it the last year, last 18 months of Daniel's operation in these kingdoms and empires. Now, I also want you to imagine this. Cyrus is never touching a pen. Am I right? When you're the empire of, when you're Cyrus the Great, you don't write stuff, right? So who drafted this bill? Who put this before Cyrus to sign? Right, this is Daniel's influence on King Cyrus to see to it. He's finally in a place. And some of his last efforts now are to see that the exiles get to go home and that the temple and the city of God can be rebuilt. Daniel's influence brings the exiles home and starts the rebuilding of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now, Ezra is writing this. He's recounting the first phase of the return and the rebuilding up through chapter 4, I think it is. Uh, Ezra himself is not present for chapters 1 to to 4, but he's recounting this. Because after that point, everything stalls. There's a regime change, uh, there's some political um, maneuvers, and the building and everything gets shut down and stopped. And it gets stalled for a long time. 
And time passes. And so it's not probably for another 60 years or so that it picks up again. Let's read that account. Go to the next book in the Bible, Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 1 is Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah chapter 2 is uh, the story that we're interested in here. So now, just to give you an idea of where Nehemiah is, he's in Persia, and he is a high-ranking servant. He's the cupbearer to the king, a very uh, kind of coveted position. Puts him inside of that, that special space that uh, Esther said, if I go in there without being invited, I'm dead meat. That space, Nehemiah gets to live in there. He has to be very careful. Now let's read Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? Speaking of Jerusalem. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him the time. Notice anything unusual in that description of events? Anything, anything in the parentheses that stuck out to you? Right? Who's sitting beside the king when Nehemiah's making this speech? What does it say there in verse 6? And the, and the queen was sitting beside him. What? Why is that important to this story? Why is that an important thing for us to, to know? Or why is that included here? The king and the queen. Who is this queen? This king would have been Esther's husband's kid. So at this point, if he's ruling, it probably means his dad is dead or retired or whatever they did. And she's the queen mother. Right? So she is in this place where previously she was scared to go. Now she is sitting there. And I think Nehemiah draws attention to the fact that the queen is there. Right? That's an unusual little inclusion to say Queen Esther was helping us get this favor. Because again, now Artaxerxes is going to write all the checks necessary and burn all the political capital necessary to get that work back in Judah restarted. Just for his cupbearer? The guy that hands him a glass of wine once in a while? Without Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra would not have returned to the land. And they're the ones that actually begin to rebuild the temple and build up the walls of Jerusalem. It was Esther's influence. So I want you to see the connection here. God used Isaiah to strengthen Daniel and Esther. And he used their experiences of faith and their experiences of God's faithfulness to empower them to begin to advocate for God's plan, God's saving plan and purposes. And God used their faith to keep his word, to fulfill his plan. And it was in that place then that Daniel and Esther both served to get the Jewish people back to, in that place and among those people that, of course, we know there would be born the child 
that Isaiah spoke so much about. God used Isaiah to help Daniel and Esther be strong and courageous. And friends, he will use his word in your life to do the exact same thing. And then God uses Daniel and Esther's faith to further his saving plan and purposes in the world. And he will use your faith in the exact same way. God will use his word to strengthen your faith. And your faith is not for yourself, but is for the world in which God has put you. One last verse I want us to draw our attention to as we close. Isaiah sustained their faith. Their faith served God's purpose. Now this is the Apostle Paul. This is 500, 600 years later than all the events and stories we've talked about. And he's writing to Gentile believers in Philippi. In the Roman Empire, new Gentile Christians. And he's quoting Daniel. He's saying, in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. Do you ever feel like you're in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation? He says, in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, you can shine like lights. You can shine like stars in the night sky as you hold fast to the word. And that's quoting Daniel. As you hold to the word, the word makes you luminous. And you will shine. What was true for Daniel, Paul's saying, is true for you, Gentiles. It's true for us. We're a Bible church. What is the Bible for? The Bible is for us in fearful times to know that God is faithful. To know that he is faithful so that we are made strong and so that we shine like stars in the sky. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for these stories. We're so thankful for this little insight into the way that you work. That you work in regular people's lives. And some, some people like Daniel, very devout, and some people not very devout. But you bring us back to you through your word. And, and through these stressors, we come to turn to you and rely on you more. And we know that through your word, you will strengthen us. And that as you strengthen us, you will make us witnesses to you. You will use us to bring salvation to others. And so, Lord, just as we see this sequence of this, this sequence of events in these Old Testament stories, help us to trust in the same sequence of events in our lives. That as we face fearful things, we turn to your word. And as your word gives us strength, we live for you. Spirit, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts now. Strengthen us according to your word. According to your word, give us life. In Jesus' name, amen.